Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report this morning. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on the latest development plaguing the legislation to ban surprise balance billing. Healthcare attorney David Glazer joins us with another example of risky business. Senior healthcare compliance expert Sean Weiss is standing by with the Monitor Monday audit report. Nicole Emanuel has the RAC report. Alan Fink Sandberg reports on the latest news on the social determinants of mental health. And we begin this morning with Dr. Rhonda Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. As I promised last week, today I'm going to whine about the other form that CMS changed, the detailed notice of discharge. This is the form that's given to the patient who has called the QIO to appeal their discharge while we wait and wait and wait for the QIO to make their determination. The form is intended to explain to the patient in writing why you feel they're stable to be discharged from the hospital. The previous form required the hospital to indicate specific information about the medical condition of the patient that makes them no longer require hospital care. While this is also on the new form, CMS also now requires the hospital to provide a detailed explanation of why your hospital stay is no longer covered and the specific Medicare coverage rules and policy that were used to make that decision. And that's where I was a little stumped. The previous notice was pre-printed with a checkbox that said, Medicare does not cover inpatient hospital services that are not medically necessary or could be safely furnished in another setting per 42 CFR 411.15 G and K. Now that's a pretty specific reference to coverage rules. So why would CMS remove it from the form and now require hospitals to write in something that was good enough for the many past years, doesn't it still apply? If it doesn't, what else can we use? Well, the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual, Chapter 1, talks a lot about medical necessity, but it really talks about the medical necessity of the admission, not how long a patient stays. The utilization review conditions of participation do require hospitals to review the duration of stays, but that only applies to outlier cases. Now, hospitals do review length of stay on all patients, but that's because they get no extra money for longer stays. So patients who don't need to be in the hospital shouldn't be, and it's not because they're required to. Now, the QIO manual in Chapter 4 addresses discharge reviews and nicely states that inpatient care rather than outpatient care is required only if the patient's medical condition, safety, or health would be significantly and directly threatened if care was provided in a less intense setting. But the QIO manual provides guidance to the QIO when reviewing discharge appeals, and it's not a policy that applies to hospitals. So what other specific rule could you reference? Well, maybe the Social Security Act, which states in 1862B that Medicare does not cover services that are not medically necessary. 
It's confusing. But as we were going on the air, CMS responded to me that the same references from the old form still apply. And it's perfectly appropriate for hospitals to pre-print those references right on the form. Now, why didn't they just say that in the first place? Now, one last note. Many of you may have seen some press coverage of a study from RAND published in New England Journal that showed Medicare paid $2.6 billion for surgery global period visits that never occurred. That should not be news to any of you, as I reported on this right here in 2018. So keep listening to Monitor Monday to hear the news before it is news. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now's the time for the Monitor Monday RAC Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Good morning and happy Monitor Monday. Over the years, we've talked about RAC audits and alleged overpayments. We have talked about how the federal regulations protect providers from recoupment from alleged overpayments at the first and second level of appeal. But between the second and the third, there is no protection. With the backlog at the ALJ level, it's between the second and third levels getting to an in-person ALJ that can sink a provider. A writ of mandamus. This is a very archaic legal remedy. It is an order from a court to an inferior government official ordering the government official to properly fulfill their official duties or correct an abuse of discretion. Mandamus is an extraordinary remedy which should only be used in exceptional circumstances of particular emergency or public importance. Well, we have this case in federal district court. Dr. Dole is a board-certified pain management specialist and a qualified provider of physician services under Medicare Part B. He is one of two physicians in the area who limit their practice to the medical management of chronic pain. Well, Advanced Med used statistical sampling and extrapolation to calculate and project an overpayment of claims to Dr. Dole in the amount of approximately $4.3 million. Dr. Dole sought hearings before an ALJ on the $4.3 million claim on July 28, 2017, almost three years ago, two and a half. No ALJ since then has been assigned to either case, and no hearing has been held. Nevertheless, the defendants in this case, Advanced Med, moved forward with recruitment efforts in July 2017 charging 10.25% interest per annum to all amounts allegedly owed and withholding 100% of Dr. Dole's current Medicare reimbursement. At the time of our hearing on May 24, 2019, it had been roughly 650 days since the ALJ hearing was requested, and during that time, Medicare had recouped almost $2.4 million from Dr. Dole by withholding payments for services rendered. Medicare turned the remaining debt over to the United States Department of Treasury, who in turn hired Performant Recovery to collect the debt from Dr. Dole. In light of the backlog of appeals, it's more likely than not that that the defendants will recoup 100% of the alleged overpayment and accrued interest before the ALJ holds a hearing. Come in mandamus. Mandamus may only issue when the plaintiff has a clear right to relief 
two, the defendant a clear duty to act, and three, no other adequate remedy exists. What other great situation could mandamus be put in than these rack audits and premature recovery? Despite the defendant's contentions, the court held that Dr. Dole has a clear right to a hearing before an ALJ. And under the regulations, the ALJ hearing shall be conducted and the ALJ must render a decision by not later than the end of a 90-day period. The court said that even though the defendants argue that other adequate remedy exists, Dr. Dole, common sense and case law dictate otherwise. Interestingly, the court stated that though Dr. Dole is not the only provider in this precarious situation, he is the only one who has come to court properly seeking the court's assistance. This indicates that other providers should look for relief by requesting a mandamus going forward. Thanks so much. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Sean Weiss, and Matthew Albright, who's standing by to report our lead story this morning on surprise balance billing. This is Monday. It's January the 27th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Getting observation billing right has always been important, especially to get cost reporting correct and ensure that reimbursement matches true costs and that future rate setting is based on actual historic data. But now it is more important than ever because auditors are starting to audit for excess observation hours. Though it was previously felt to not be worth their time, auditors have caught on to the fact that many healthcare professionals are not aware they may be billing observation incorrectly. Learn how to bill observation services correctly to avoid denials. Join Dr. Ronald Hirsch for his webcast Thursday, February 6th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Here now is healthcare attorney David Glazer, and good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. Got a pair. So first, the risk that someone in a position of authority will bully someone in the organization to do something that they shouldn't. And second, the risk that a name change will mess up your exclusion review process. So last week, a client called me with a story that has two lessons that apply to all of our listeners, regardless of setting. When I tell client stories in this broadcast, I usually change or omit a few key facts to protect confidentiality. But here, I'm just going to stay a bit vague. So this client, a large health system, received a call from someone who identified themselves as an OIG employee. They were calling to inquire about an employee listed on the organization's 855 enrollment form. The caller asserted that the employee had been excluded from the Medicare program many, many years ago. The government official indicated to the professional who took the call that they wanted to schedule another call. The government official told the client, uh, the professional from the client, that they were to be on the call alone without including anyone from the organization, including counsel. What would you do if you got such a call? I hope you would do exactly what this professional did. Contact the organization's legal counsel. That lawyer had the same thought I did. Is this person really a government employee, or is it some sort of scam? I've been doing this for over 25 years, and I can't think of another time someone from the CMS or the OIG acted like a petty criminal and said, you need to come alone. That's something a kidnapper might say in a movie, but it's not a line I've heard from a true blue government official. 
Uh, and no, Madonna is not the song of the week. Turns out there's a first time for everything. The call was authentic. We confirmed that with our due diligence. Um, so the client then told the government official that they'd be happy to set up a call, but they wouldn't abide by the bizarre request to limit it to one person. Legal and other professionals were going to participate. During the subsequent call, the story emerged. The employee in question had changed his or her name. While the organization had searched the OIG exclusion list when the person was hired many years ago, they searched under the employee's then-current name. When the employee had been excluded many years prior to that, the employee's name was different. The employee's marital status and name had changed after the exclusion, but before the hiring. Now, this organization searches by social security number only when the initial inquiry reveals a hit in the database. And in fact, I think that that may be the only way you can do it. I don't think you can do a search by social security number until you have a hit. There are f at least four lessons from the story. I think my original two might be wrong. So first, it's worth asking new employees to list all names they have used and to search the exclusion list under each of those names. Uh, the OIG includes that as a search tip on their website. Second, there's a federal statute that requires Medicare to waive an overpayment if you're without fault. We've talked about it before. If you take reasonable steps to check the exclusion list, but somehow fail to locate the excluded individual, there's often a compelling argument that you're still not required to refund any money. If your actions were entirely appropriate, you can assert you're without fault and skip the refund. Third, don't blindly trust the authenticity of someone who calls you. This client wisely called the main switchboard of the organization to verify that the caller really was a government employee. Fourth, and finally, don't allow anyone to bully you with unreasonable demands. It wasn't Petty, Tom Petty, to refuse to accede to the unreasonable demand that they come alone generally, and Sands Council in particular. When you get a crazy demand, Tell them you won't back down. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where it's a balmy 24 degrees. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of mental health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a monitor Monday listener serving. Good morning, Alan. Alan, what's the latest news concerning the social determinants of mental health? Good morning, Chuck. This continues to be a very interesting topic to review. It is definitely on everyone's watch list, particularly the costs incurred to treat mental health and behavioral health and substance use in emergency departments. Poor management of these patients drains resources and provides limited meaningful treatment. It's more like trying to put a wet Band-Aid on a cut and expecting it to stay put. By the way, it doesn't. A recently released white paper by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Wellbeing Trust hopes to shift the care dilemma. The paper, Improving Behavioral Healthcare in the Emergency Department, 
and upstream provides hospital EDs and their community partners with strategic guidance to render more compassionate, seamless, and effective systems of care for patients with mental health conditions. The guidelines are important considerations to mitigate gaps in care, enhance treatment processes, plus reduce costs and readmissions. The social determinants of mental health evoke challenges for EDs. They drive unnecessary visits. The average patient with psychiatric needs directly costs an ED $1,198 to $2,264 per visit. These patients can present dozens of times annually and for varied reasons. Inability to access appropriate and timely psych follow-up and access to prescriptions, to name a few. To make matters worse, Mental health and substance abuse treatment deserts exist throughout the country, especially in rural regions, often leaving EDs as the only accessible care. Assorted reports identify how Medicaid recipients face greater challenges in obtaining needed behavioral health and substance abuse treatment. Creative ways to incorporate integrated behavioral health models in EDs, if not also primary care, is a clear mandate. Proactive solutions minimize reactive response to the social determinants. Eight U.S. hospitals engaged in an 18-month learning community. Participants tested strategies for improving patient outcomes and experiences of care. They were able to profoundly decrease avoidable repeat ED visits for individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. Additionally, several of the hospitals reduced ED length of stay, the number of patient-to-staff assaults, and restraint use. This triple-headed monster impacts workforce safety, retention, and burnout across every setting. The white paper provides a number of recommendations, including leveraging community partnerships and interprofessional team expertise, prioritizing trauma-informed care training to enhance response to patients, addressing the needed cultural shift in practices for behavioral health and addiction, enhancing the information flow to create standardization and accountability, updating hiring procedures to support new roles, soliciting family input in how treatment should work, and standardizing ED processes while making sure organizational cultures support process changes. The report makes for interesting reading and is available on the IHI website. A link to the report is available in the resources from panelists tab. Now, our Monitor Monday listener survey this week asks, what challenges does your ED face for patients presenting with behavioral health and substance abuse needs? A, inability to access previously prescribed medications. B, inability to access appropriate behavioral health follow-up, whether psychiatrist or therapy. C, lack of appropriate treatment options, mental health or substance use. D, all of the above. We'll check back at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant author Alan Fink-Sandvik, and Alan said we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. Here now with the Monitor Monday audit report is compliance expert Sean Weiss. Good morning, Sean. Thank you, Chuck, and good Monday morning to everyone. The age-old question of can we offer cash pay discounts, professional courtesy, and or the waiver of co-payments or deductibles continues to be as relevant today as it was two decades ago. There have been a lot of opinions over the years by various investigational organizations in addition to Medicare, but yet 
here we are, still working towards educating healthcare professionals throughout our industry. So I thought I would focus on those opinions that have been the most definitive and consistent over the years. I'll begin with Medicare, whereby they state, quote, collection efforts to Medicare must be no less than to those beneficiaries, but can have less restrictive efforts for non-Medicare beneficiaries, including the uninsured, and substantial discounting to the uninsured, including the non-indigent, does not render a hospital's charge structure entirely fictitious, end quote. The OIG's position with regard to these issues includes their concern with copay waivers serving as an inducement to Medicare beneficiaries to use an entity or individual services. It is critical to keep in mind that by statute, improper copay waivers can result in civil monetary penalties. The OIG has determined, consistent with statute, that copay waivers are allowed if there is an individual determination of financial need. The determination is based on uniformly applied criteria. The financial need criteria are reasonable and the policy is not advertised. To take it a step further with regard to determining whether financial need criteria are reasonable, OIG suggests considering the following. First is the local cost of living. Second is the patient's income, assets, and expenses. Third is the patient's family size. And fourth is the scope and extent of a patient's medical bills. Keep in mind that when we are talking about violations, we are tying them for the most part to the federal programs and as such, Waiving copays and or deductibles for government program beneficiaries potentially implicates at least the following laws. First is the Monetary Penalties Law, which falls under the Federal Civil Monetary Penalties Law, or the CMPL, and prohibits offering or transferring remuneration to federal program beneficiaries if the provider knows or should know that the remuneration is likely to influence the beneficiary to order or receive items or services payable by federal or state healthcare programs, such as Medicare, from a particular provider. Second is the anti-kickback statute. The federal anti-kickback statute, also referred to as the AKS, prohibits knowingly and willfully offering, paying, soliciting, or receiving remuneration to any person to induce such person to order or receive any items or service for which payment may be made under a federal health care program unless the arrangement fits within a regulatory safe harbor. The AKS is violated if one purpose of the remuneration is to induce federal program business. Violations may result in a five-year prison term, $25,000 in criminal penalties, $50,000 in administrative penalties, treble damages, and exclusion from Medicare and Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act also made an AKS violation an automatic violation of the False Claims Act, which may result in additional penalties and repayment of amounts improperly received. Finally, the Office of the Inspector General has interpreted the anti-kickback statute to apply to waiving patient 
cost-sharing amounts if, quote, one purpose, end quote, of the waiver is to induce or reward federal program business, which can be a difficult standard to defend against. This week in my article, I'll provide more documentation to assist with helping your organization mitigate risks on this topic and will include the OIG Special Fraud Report, Routine Waivers of Copayments or Deductibles under Medicare Part B from May of 1991. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Sean, very much. That was Sean Weiss reporting. Sean is a partner and chief compliance officer for Doctors Management. We continue to monitor the struggle to pass legislation to ban surprise balance billing. A new coalition called the Coalition Against Rate Setting considers the proposed use of benchmarking tantamount to price fixing. What will happen next to the compromise legislation hammered out with bipartisan support? Well, Matthew Albright, who's been monitoring the story, joins us now for an update. Good morning, Matthew. Hey, Matthew, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Good morning, Chuck. Uh, I don't know about a light at the end of the tunnel, and like they say, it could be a train. You know, Congress was really two steps forward on surprise balance billing just a few months ago, but now it looks like they've taken a whole four steps back. So let's do a quick uh, recap sequence, you know, like they have at the beginning of those Netflix shows. When we last left our lawmakers back in the fall, it looked like a surprise balance billing law was imminent. Both the House and the Senate had carved out their respected bills over a year of discussions and hearings. The two chambers had also done this in a bipartisan manner. And although there were some subtle differences between the House and the Senate bills, the two bills were in agreement that one, patients should be protected from surprise balance billings, and two, that the provider reimbursement should be based on a benchmark. Now, the House and Senate even seemed to agree on the devil that was in the details. Both bills agreed that the benchmark should be a planned median negotiated rate. In early December, it looked like a slam dunk. A bipartisan proposal was presented that merged these two bills and committees from both the House and Senate looked ready to slide it into a bigger spending bill that was set to be passed before the holiday break. But just a few days later, the dunk was blocked when a new proposal emerged from the House Ways and Means Committee that couldn't have been more different from the earlier bills and the more recent bicameral proposal. The new House proposal threw out the idea of a benchmark and instead allowed plans and providers to work out their reimbursement without government intervention. If the payer or the provider could not agree on a, on a reimbursement rate, then the proposal suggested a, quote, robust, robust reconciliation process is triggered. Note that this is, in general, similar to how a majority of state surprise balance billing laws approach reimbursement in surprise billing situations. But when this new counterproposal with no benchmarks came out, there was no hope to work out a compromise before the holiday break, and the congressional effort at passing a surprise balance billing law fizzled out. So it's now 2020. Happy New Year, y'all. But since the beginning of the year, there's been little time for either the House or the Senate to dedicate resources to surprise balance billing. The House has announced that it's going to expand its investigation into private equity-owned provider groups like Team Health and Envision and their involvement in the, in the whole surprise balance billing arena. Earlier this month, lawmakers asked some of the national insurance carriers to provide information about how these particular provider groups are reimbursed. These private equity-owned groups are the same organizations that funded an advertising campaign during the summer intended to sink the surprise balance billing legislation that was then being considered. And speaking of lobbying, like you mentioned, 
The House pre-holiday proposal to throw out any reimbursement benchmarks is likely to have a friend with a new coalition of conservative groups called the Coalition Against Rate Setting. The coalition says that setting a benchmark for out-of-network reimbursement is akin to government rate setting and therefore against free market principles. It's perhaps a sign of the times, Chuck, that the rate-setting proposals have actually come from a Republican-run Senate and appear to be supported by a Republican president. Back to Congress's status with the surprise balance billing bill. Although everyone on the Hill continues to say that surprise balance billing is a priority, it's looking less and less likely that Congress will be able to pass it anytime soon. Congress's best chance is hooking it to an unrelated health care bill that needs to be passed in May. If they can't come to an agreement before May, then the best chance for passage would not be until the end of the year during the lame duck session. And this is because, right, nothing is going to happen in D.C. between May and the election in November. Why? Because there's an election in November. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. I was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. We'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey with Alan Fink-Samnick in 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of the Auditor Monitor, discover why Chapter 8 of the Program Integrity Manual is critical read for healthcare providers. Chapter 8 outlines the rules that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services must follow when determining administrative actions and statistical sampling. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance now to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your subscription today and start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Subscribe before March 31st and receive Auditor Monitor's 2019 edition complimentary. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your annual subscription of the Auditor Monitor today. And now is the time for the results of the day's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. So what challenges does your ED face for patients presenting with behavioral health and substance abuse needs? Again, record turnout for this question. 65, almost 66% of you said, frankly, all of the above. Everything presents as an issue for these patients from access to prescribed medications, which only about 4% of you said was an issue, inability to access appropriate behavioral health follow-up from a psychiatrist or a therapist, about 15%, lack of appropriate treatment options, mental health or substance abuse, 16%. Again, close to 66% said all of the above. Clearly, we've got miles to go before we sleep, needing to expand provider services, address the provider deserts, um, and continue to expand services and resources and more proactive ways to address these populations. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Helen, very much. That's going to be your wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glater, Dr. Ron Hirsch, and Sean Weiss. And remember, you can listen to all of Monitor Monday podcasts anytime on any device, and it's absolutely free. Until next Monday, this is Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.